0: This is lee habib and this is our american stories and we love to talk about everything here on this show from business to history from sports to the arts and your stories too send them to our we'll take a listen we'll put it together produce it and you'll be hearing your stories your own stories on the air they're some of our favorites the american people can write and talk and my goodness what stories you've already given us What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story.
1: I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her head
2: In the, sound of In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm
3: up good vibrations.
2: Here's Ringo Starr.
3: It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen.
2: Here's music producer... Don was
4: just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song, everyone thought that was insanity.
2: Here's music historian Chuck Granada and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes.
5: In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling.
6: What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. A, a really personal endeavor. I worked in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company, uh, or not only were they not aware that I was making a record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it, and the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point. Someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, "Wow, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul." And he says, "Yeah, there's a good reason for that Les
4: Paul not only designed some guitars that made new, and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. That, that, that changed everything. News,
2: news, Here's Eric Clapton. Love, high, 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 high.
4: The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s, I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary.
2: We uh, turn the tape machines on. They're just a Standard, regular, uh,
7: Ampex tape machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As I recall, there are, uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices?
3: Huh? Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now wow.
8: I'll add a tenor part to
9: that. All right. Wait a Somewhere
8: there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere, Somewhere there's
9: heaven, heaven hi,
10: ha the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head?
9: <laughs>
3: it's being, pretty confused. Or being
10: cued by your husband. <laughs>
3: well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music, I think it is. Somewhere there's heaven, ha hi,
2: the moon. Here's Jeff Beck.
4: Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying that you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound, is it's still exciting. <laughs> Before magnetic tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally
5: etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded.
4: You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic tape... It just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it let you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard
0: format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler.
10: Okay, wouldn't it be nice take five?
0: Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship
2: with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Peppers. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granado.
4: I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. The, the, that was an elevated musical consciousness in play.
5: Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album which was Pet Sounds.
1: You know it's gonna make it that much better When we can say goodnight and stay together
4: Told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session. That they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul.
10: None of those big pickups, bah, bah, just, uh, just like
5: doo 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 doo. Brian like pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts. Even before anyone set foot in the studio, Brian was the mastermind.
10: I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. Then uh, the bongos will come in the second half, like everything else. All right, here we go.
5: Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio.
2: Here's Glenn Campbell.
5: Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three
10: and a half hours when he was running his finger up thing, going Barrr. I'm picking up good vibrations.
1: She's giving me the excitations. I'm backing up good vibrations. She's my
4: just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change when he made good vibrations brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it Everyone thought that was insanity. You know, like a, it, he's gone mad. He spent ninety hours working on one song. So, you know, I mean, today that's nothing.
2: Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay.
4: The session that we did on
10: Good Vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions.
1: Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding. You know, and it's like, come on, Brian. Fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but she sent me there. I love the sensation of my, 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 Gotta keep those loving good vibrations of right. happiness.
4: He's a very deep guy. You know, so he wanted to move beyond songs about summer and and surfing. Just saying something like, God only knows what I'd be without you, in a rock and roll song, and then create this wonderful music that enables a listener 50 years later to put it on and to feel what, what they were feeling. That's great art.
5: I may not always love... The way he layered and added different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub over overdub over overdub until on god only knows he ended up with 7 tracks of vocal overdubs and that's how come you hear this heavenly choir here's paul
1: mccartney
4: We loved the Beach Boys, and it it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper.
2: Here's Ringo Starr.
3: What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Woo, oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time.
1: to <laughs>
2: Beatles' producer, George Martin.
3: The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we like on it.
4: The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum.
3: Of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song, oh, woke up, fed out a bit, of bed, you know the one. To come across my head. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm. Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long
4: making Sgt. Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, (coughs) no, we haven't. Here's
2: Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, f*** me, that's. Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in in that sense, that album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in Our American Stories, is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things we are learning here, we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution, here on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled "Red, White, and Sacrebleu." It's written and hosted by Ted Boliker. Sacrebleu. The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. (laughs) America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up, to the amazement of the world and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since
11: at least the mid-20th century, the US has tried to match the sophistication of French wines, but it's been a tough sell.
10: Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo
11: wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like
3: the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't
11: recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag.
3: This champagne doesn't come from France.
11: Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French.
3: Take two. Ah, the French.
11: These boozy outtakes confirm that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get
8: rippled
11: American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noel Formeau. Something like the hamburger.
7: Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy.
11: Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in
7: 1976,
11: a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged.
7: There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty
11: France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. (laughs) It's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a a slap in the face.
4: I was uh, feeling like I was born again.
11: Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? (laughs) How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way different when I came from communism
4: was not freedom (laughs) I have used American opportunity
11: Gurgic was raised in a small village in Croatia he developed a taste for wine at a very young age
4: to be honest my mama switched me from breast
7: milk
11: at the age of two and a half to wine and I liked When Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place.
4: I already felt that there is a kind of vibration in the air that people are trying to
11: compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig.
7: I go to different chateaus and I
11: taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced
7: such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything.
11: That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgic's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly.
7: The French were interested to understand what was going on in California.
11: Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. That course put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it.
7: Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. Uh, and it's people who say to spy. So what did the
11: wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation.
7: And because of that, America has been able to create anything that have changed, really, the way wine is made today.
11: Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation and process Gurgach helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's
7: extremely difficult in France, compared to here, That. You are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or, quote-unquote, family rules.
11: Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all. But you learn first he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance.
7: I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formo grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment.
11: What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formo quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in
7: California. Here I felt free and I could be successful. And that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't have done in France.
11: But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacra And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacra Blue. And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise. And just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do... By going to ouramericannetwork.org, our Dodd Frank series "Where Have You Gone, George Bailey?" is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding, or credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines. Not having that level of intervention. Again, this is our American story. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fastbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson Max. Here's Betsy.
8: A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. "'Hi, bud. Nice moves.' No reply. "'What you doing?' he finally asked. "'Just trying to organize some of my pictures.' In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on? "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' "'He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me. "'leaning his warm body against my arm. "'He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. "'Who will that be to me?' "'He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago.' "'Max shrugged and resumed his ball-tossing. "'I already got a grandfather,' he said, not unkindly. "'Lots of kids have two grandpas. "'I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather.' "'Hmm,' Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. What about them? he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me. Played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners. But I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. "'Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. "'Megan and Matt will be your cousins.' "'Sweet!' he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. "'His eyes were chocolate pools, "'his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat "'that made me want to run my fingers over it. "'I don't have any boy cousins. "'And how about him? "'My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle.' I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. "'Whoa!' he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, Buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh, he played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the Earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic 8-ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. "'What should I call you?' he asked, not looking at me. "'I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. "'My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. "'My stomach turned over. "'Mama!' I wanted to cry. "'I'll be your mama, and you'll be my son.' "'I resisted. "'You can call me Mom or Mama. "'You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather.' Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute, and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? He asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding, a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then... Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. "'Can we go bowling?' he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, "'Mom.'" The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance— that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, "'I notice I don't call you Mom.' I breathed to calm my voice. "'I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. "'When I say Betsy, I mean Mom.' I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him, He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner?
0: And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, A Memoir of an Inherited Family, and my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through, and it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story, and 16% of all American families are mixed ones, and we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story, Betsy Fastbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show. And it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus takes the wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Gimme Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip, because when we're telling the story of the song, we'd like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it.
9: I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that, will, that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it yeah. would just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was, would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. Yeah. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to 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 strike a chord with people that that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times, that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing um uh, healing process for her when she lost her brother i feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one
0: and we're all blessed and lucky he did and you know it was interesting as we were listening to that clip greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to the song in fact he listens to it every week he told us and then in the end it inspires him as it relates to how to live There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain, son, when your work on earth is done. Go to heaven a-shoutin', love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, Let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song I
1: know your For the Father and the Son Oh how we cried The day you left us We gathered round Your grave to grieve Wish I could see
0: You're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gill's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is our American Stories: the story of a song. i and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories from every part of this great country, north, south, east, west, big cities, little towns, and everything in between. And today we bring you a story from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name for being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And if Midland is known for anything, it's for the tremendous oil and gas resources that power our nation. And one of the leading energy entrepreneurs there is a guy by the name of Tim Dunn, who's been married to his wife, Terry, for over 40 years. And today brings us a story from his book, Yellow Balloons.
12: I'm in that phase of having grandkids. We have our number 18 on the way now. That came from six children who are now all married we had six kids in nine years. And Mary Catherine, our oldest daughter, her uh, husband, Tim, and she moved to town. So Mary Catherine and Tim moved in with us and they had uh, two daughters, Wheatley, who was four at the time, and Mariah, who was about one. So they lived with us while they were looking for a house. Then they found a house, but it was a fixer upper. So they were going through fixing it up. So they ended up living with us for nine months. And during that time, of course, we got to see Mariah and Wheatley every day. And Mariah went from being a rug rat to a curtain climber to a toddler. She was a real joy as a kid. When there was a party of some kind, she would lap surf. She would go from <laughs> lap to lap based on whatever food was in front of Everyone <laughs> say Whoever had the best goodies, that's whose lap she wanted to be in. Obviously, you're always attached to your grandkids, but this was more like our kid. Mariah had had some fever-induced seizures, which means she'd get a low-grade fever and didn't have a seizure. So we got six kids, and five of them are in the oil business with us. But David was beat to his own drum. He's almost just like me, which means we butted heads all the way growing up. So um, I remember when as a junior, he was like, you know, you're controlling me. You don't give me any freedom. And I said, here's what freedom is. You pay the rent. You pay the car payment. You pay your own insurance. And you will be free in 18 months. And I can't wait. And I saw his eyes get as big as saucers. We never had any more problems. After that. <laughs> <laughs> so David went and he got an engineering degree. And so his brothers really leaning on him to come back to us. We needed help really bad. But he decided he's going to be a musician. And he said, I just don't want to look back and wonder what I could have done. So he gave himself two years. And that was about 10 years ago now. One of his songs just won an award for a song of the year in Christian music called I Want to Go Back.
2: When I was a kid, I was sure I
1: could run across the ocean. Now, I was going to be an astronaut it was you and it was me i had everything i needed faith could even move a mountain top. and then i grew up and then i got older and my life got tough and we grew apart
12: so david is in nashville and he's he's the only one that's not with us and he had really not been to midland for about nine months But he had an event that he was booked for, so he was in town. And he had a song on the radio at that time. His first song to play on the radio called Today is Beautiful. And it's a song about perspective. And here's where the song came from. It came from our family all being at Disneyland. Our our family likes to take big trips together. We discovered that if we'll pay, everybody comes. (laughs) So (laughs) we were at Disneyland or Disney World, and... Lee's kids at the time were about four and two, named Brady and Addie. So Addie was pushing the empty stroller and Brady wanted to push that stroller and Addie wouldn't let him. And so Brady just had a complete meltdown. There was a lot of laughing about that. Here we are at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Got all these rides around you and here's this kid melting down because I can't push a stroller, something you can do anywhere on earth. And David, in particular, thought, you know, we kind of do that as humans. We're, we're in a Disneyland, really. The amazing opportunities we have in life, and we're melting down because of the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. But We kind of do this to ourselves. So if we can lift your eyes and see it in a different light, you'll realize everything is beautiful. That's the core of the song. So he came to town, and Mariah and particularly really loved this song. And she couldn't speak well enough to sing the whole thing. But the chorus goes something like. That's how it goes. So she would say eyes, light, sky. She would just do that one tag word on the end. And she called him Uncle Daze because she couldn't date Dave, Dave so it was a daze. So every time the song came on the radio, she would, Uncle Daze, and she would sing along. So Uncle Dave was a big favorite. And, of course, he's the only out-of-town uncle, so he's a big favorite. So he came to town. So we went over to Becky's house. Mary Catherine was at her sister's house with Mariah. And Mary Catherine was holding Mariah, and David said, Hey, Mariah. And Mariah was just not feeling like up to date. She had a really light grave fever. And so she just didn't feel too good. So we said, "Oh, okay. Well, you know, she will go. And let her take a nap, and and then we'll see her later." So I took Dave, and we had a new office building at the time, and I took him to go on a tour of the office. And I got a call from Terry that was, uh, you know, you got to come home right now. Mariah's not responsive. So. We flipped around and went home and uh, realized that the ambulance we had passed was Mariah going to the hospital. And Terry had been outside going for a walk, and Mary Catherine was kind of keeping an eye on Mariah because of these fever-induced seizures. So she went in looked, and Mariah was blue. So she screamed. Terry had just gotten back. She went in, immediately did CPR. They called the EMTs. They were there in five minutes. So really... They caught it in plenty of time. They got her color back, but we learned later that about 90% of the time with the little kids, they can't start their hearts. And that was it. They just couldn't restart her heart. So she's in a nap. She was perfectly fine. And she just died. So here we all are, and... You know, you have this immense tragedy. I knew that when couples lose kids, that the divorce rate's pretty high. So I immediately called our pastor and said, hey, we need help, uh, because I I don't want to see our family break up or see people, you know, families within our family break up. he said, well, we're just bringing in this program called Grief Share, which I recommend. It helped our family immensely. But here's the bottom line. If you grieve together and you understand the way other people want to grieve and you grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you hurt more faster, but the event will bring you together. But the human tendency is to not want to have pain. So when the pain comes, And it's your day to grieve, but not the other person's day. What tends to happen is the other person will withdraw because they don't want to feel that pain that day. So you get a little further apart. And then tomorrow, it's their grief, and you're okay that day, so you withdraw. And people just drift apart because they wouldn't grieve together. And this is the way I personalized it. I'm an oil and gas investor, right? I understand investment. If you invest in other people's pain... And grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you're investing in what's left, which is the relationships you still have. So, what that looked like for me is every time, for I mean, for months after, I, every time I saw somebody, they wanted to talk about Mariah's death. And, and they wanted to grieve with me. You know, it, it's a grief for them too. Now, from my standpoint, I didn't really want to grieve anymore. You know, I grieved enough. But you know what? Because of that perspective that my pastor gave us, I was able to say, I want to grieve with this person because I'm investing in this relationship. This is what remains.
0: And when we continue more of the story of Tim Dunn, Mariah, and so much more about life and living from this terrific American voice, Tim Dunn's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories.
11: To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons, and it's about, well, it's about a loss, but it's also about how to live a life. And when we last left off, we were hearing about grief, and my goodness, what good good advice for anybody who is going through such a thing right now, a real tragic loss in the family and how to deal with it with other people. But now we continue with the story of Tim Dunn's family, and yellow balloons because well what i loved about this book is that it wasn't really about grief it was about how to live a good life what
12: the book is really about is not grief per se it's how to choose a perspective because when something tragic like that happens to you you're forced to choose a perspective you're forced to think well how am i supposed to look at this but really every day all day long, we're choosing a perspective. Most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. And if we are aware, we're not thinking to ourselves, well, what is the correct perspective? What's true? And, and the book mainly is about the power, the immense power, the overwhelming power to choose how we look at things. There's only three things we get to choose as humans. We get to choose who we trust, what we do and how we look at things, our perspective, the perspective we choose. That's it. Now, we tend to try to control other people. We can influence other people. We can't control it. We can't make choices for other people. We try to control the weather. We get mad at the weather. We try to control traffic lights. We try to control all kinds of things, our sports teams. Here's my worst one. I try to control basketball officials. It's futile. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work and it makes me unhappy and I lose. And I've done it ever since I was a kid. I was a bad player. I would think about the refs instead of thinking about the game. It's counterproductive, okay? So, really, the question is, what's what's true about what's going on? And what our pastor helped us do then is choose a true perspective. But really, all day long every day, we should be thinking to ourselves, What's the true perspective? In order to choose a true perspective, we have to decide, well, what do I believe in? And that's going to shape what we choose to do. And if we do that well, if we do that well, then we will have a great life, no matter what circumstances are, a great life that will go on forever. It it changes eternity when we do that well. If we don't do that well, it's self-induced destruction, and it's misery. The valley is really the only time you generally are aware of your circumstances, <laughs> right? Because the, the circumstances make you be aware. And the valley is when difficulty comes, uh, disappointment. Your expectations are shattered. And I call it a Job-like experience after the biblical book of Job. But the valleys are the times really usually when growth is most accessible because the circumstances force you to reflect and to decide, do I want to do something different from what I'm used to doing? But most of our life is lived on the plains, everyday routines, and we tend to not value those and not think of them as anything special. We tend to think of the valleys as times when we want to avoid and the mountaintops like when when things are great when you had some success or achievement that you wanted to have that that's the desirable place and the plains don't really matter but really the plains is where most of life is lived uh, the word routine means is the derivative of a latin root that means well traveled you know it's it's a where our habits are and that's really where most of life's opportunity exists and I, I had a I had a very tangible example of this that came to me through Mariah she died on a Friday and the Wednesday before she died which she was, she was perfectly fine until she died in this nap you know and so Wednesday before she came she's again she's living with us and she, she I was I was in the house by myself with her for some reason and she came over to me and said tramping Trampoline, and I said, "You saying trampoline? Yeah. So, well, do you want me to go out and bounce you on the trampoline? Yeah. So, okay. And so, I went over and I opened the door, and she goes toddling out, kind of, you know, about a quarter out of balance, go popping out there. And so, I bounced her on the trampoline for a while, and she giggled. And then, our trampoline's built into the ground, so we can kind of childproof it. <clears throat> so it's a there's a hole underneath it. So she started. Getting under that hole and playing peekaboo with me, and every time she would pop up, she'd, you know, belly laugh. Oh, we might have done that for twenty minutes or something. It wasn't. It was just an everyday event, and you know, and it's easy to say no to kids. It's it's not usually something, but I always try to say yes. You know, not long after, you know, my uh, uh, one of my four year olds asked me to play hungry hungry hippo. Really, what I thought inside was, I don't want to play hungry hungry hippo, but I said sure, I'll go play hungry hungry hippo. So. You know it was an everyday event what well, it's really my last memory of mariah okay so you think well it was really special was it is it was it special yes it actually was but it was it different than every other opportunity no every opportunity you have to interact with another human every opportunity you have it's all special if you can choose your perspective that way then really all of life is this unbelievable wonderful uh, adventure now the bible says uh, life is like a wisp of vapor. That's a comparative thing. Compared to how long we're going to exist, the life on this earth is not going to last very long. But it's the only time we'll get the opportunity to live where God's presence is veiled from us to enough extent where we can live by faith and make choices without any compulsion, you know, when you see something so clearly, you, you don't really have a choice, right? Well, now things are kind of murky, and you have to really think—you know, what's true, what perspective am I going to choose? So this life, if, although it's short, it's shaping who we become forevermore, and and that part of it's not not—we can't ever—that's not repeatable. This is a one-shot deal, and if you look at those everyday routines like that, well, it puts a whole new spin on it. And then you have the mountaintops when things are, I mean, everything's wonderful, man. It's just what I want to have. But, you know, mountaintops are the most dangerous. First of all, if you become, let's say, extraordinarily wealthy, are wealthy people happier than everybody else? Is that what the statistics tell us? No, no. It, they're more fearful, typically, right? Because you're holding on. I got to stay up on this mountaintop. You know, I got to be. Well, you know, the mountaintops, are a place where you can forget what reality is. You can kind of get the illusion that you do control things because you can kind of buy everything you want, right? But, you know, trains just to If If you learn to look at it as, oh, you know, here I am. So now, how do I look at it? What's true, who do I trust, what do I do? Now you're living out of your values and you're gonna have success no matter what.
0: And that was Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons. And my goodness, we love bringing ordinary stories from ordinary Americans to you, and particularly wisdom, which is a hard thing to come by these days. And there's a lot of wisdom in what Tim Dunn says, and whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, the values, the principles that he's talking about, my goodness, we all have something to learn from Tim. Again, his book is Yellow Balloons. You can go to timdunn.org, and that's timdunn.org. Tim Dunn's story, his granddaughter Mariah's story, what a loss, but how to deal with grief, and that's everyone's story because it's coming around to everybody sooner or later. All of that, all of those stories here on Our American Stories. is our American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice graced TV sets not only from coast to coast but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross.
13: If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories Growing up, listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello,
10: I'm Bob Ross. And I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints. and paint along with us each show.
13: And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television?
10: Or just just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a
13: special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees into his beautiful landscapes. Now then,
10: <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree... Evergreen tree, he lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas, use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward, see there? Look at that, isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to
13: do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter.
10: We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little Xs, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now, the color is continually mixing with the liquid white, and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here.
13: And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career.
10: There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon.
13: His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That
10: effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting.
13: His soothing voice continues to calm people. And his endless supply of inspirational quotes like there are no mistakes only happy accidents are more
10: relevant than ever and see what happens as you paint you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas and very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen we don't we don't make mistakes we have happy accidents
13: one of the first things people noticed about bob ross was his trademark afro but it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet, Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo,
10: and there was no going back. Give him a shake. (laughs) And just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, zoom, clean the other side of the room that's when you find out who your friends are.
13: Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the US Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life
10: in the military. And there I I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture, and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom.
13: His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If
10: you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. and I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane, the first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom, because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog, and ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder, and it covers everything, everything with frost, it is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. It's so beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty.
13: It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind.
10: That's the name of the game it's enjoying. You really ought to enjoy what you do in life you do, then you'll do a good job. Mm. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. It does nothing else. It should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things All of your life, it makes make you happy. Needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy.
13: He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to
10: books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and and sit down have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world... It'll show in your painting, and all these little things will happen.
13: Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods.
10: If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens.
13: In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel
10: for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen?
13: This is surreal television.
10: Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch.
13: And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they can auction them off and keep the money. For Our
10: American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, (laughs) and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations, and it's a lot of fun. (laughs) There we go just have to splash the cameraman one time so he he doesn't feel neglected
0: this is our american stories by the way nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl 13 years old in front of the smart tv painting together to whom to old bob ross videos bob ross's story here on our american stories great job as always by jesse